0: Our epistle lesson and sermon text is, once again, from the first part of Romans 8. So listen to Romans 8, verses 1 to 4. I'll read from the handout this time. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, even as a sin offering. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous ordinance of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing once again on the reading and preaching and hearing of his inspired word. Father, we do ask again that you would continue the good work that you've begun in us, your people by opening our hearts and our minds to the truths in this great chapter, the greatest chapter perhaps in, in Scripture. And so we n- confess that we need your help and that we want your help in believing the gospel and then living out the gospel. Accomplish that in us, we pray, by the power of the Spirit and for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Amen. Please be seated. It's good to see you if you're visiting. I see some first-time visitors here and other visitors. You're welcome to stay with us today after church and eat with us. It's the first Sunday. We have a potluck every first and third Sunday. We'd love to have you and get to know you better if you're visiting. Also, a quick announcement about the sermon series. Or I guess I should say the upcoming sermon series, just to give you a heads up on what to expect. I think I've decided. Well, I guess I have decided. I'm going to say it, so now I'm locked in. Uh, after we finish Romans eight, which which will be a few weeks from now, we're going to we're going to jump back to the Old Testament and and go through the book of Job. At, at a faster clip than we're going through the book of Romans. That's all I'll say, uh, but I am committed to doing it a a little faster than we're going through Romans. But uh, we'll go through that, and then we'll come back to Romans 9 and finish Romans. So we're not abandoning the book of Romans. We're just taking a break and doing a different testament, a different genre, with, with a lot of different teachings and applications. But for now, we're still in what many have called the greatest chapter of the Bible, Romans 8. And to appreciate this chapter, we can't forget where we've been, we can't forget chapter 7. Right? These two need to be chapters must be read together. You can't you shouldn't read chapter 7 without eight and you shouldn't read chapter 8 without seven. So let's read the last five verses of Romans 7, which in a, in a way summarize the themes and the struggle that is described. In Romans 7. You can follow along at the top of the handout. If I sent Merlene the right handout, it should be at the top. Uh, Yes, I have it, so you should too. Verse 21, I find then this law. When I want to do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner person, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and taking me captive to the law of sin that is in my members. Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this dead body or body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then in my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but in my flesh, To the law of sin. Excuse me. That's my cry. That's your cry. It's it's every true believer's cry, isn't it? It's Paul's cry for sure. Do you notice how personal that was? Me, I, myself. We love God's law and we want to obey it. But evil is ever present with us. Everywhere we go, it goes. And we often end up being taken back into captivity, Paul says. Back into sin's captivity. Romans 7 describes the experience of every Christian. But Romans 7 doesn't say everything there is to say about the Christian experience. There's another experience. The experience of freedom from sin's captivity. And this experience also belongs to every Christian. In fact, this is the experience that fundamentally characterizes the life of a genuine believer. And it's described in Romans 8. The theme running through, particularly the first part of this chapter, is the liberating work of the Holy Spirit. So do do you long to be less, uh, to 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 spend less time in Romans seven captivity and more time in Romans eight, liberty freedom. Well, if so, and if and if you're a believer, you do. And if if so, pay attention to what Paul says in this chapter. He's going to show us today and in the coming weeks how to walk in the spirit rather than the flesh. How to live in victory rather than in defeat. How to set your mind on what Paul calls later in this chapter, the things of the spirit rather than the things of the flesh. But before he shows us how to to walk in the power of the spirit, uh, how to walk in the power of the gospel, we could even say, he proclaims the fact of the gospel which is that sinners are declared righteous. They're justified in Christ, and that's the first point. Paul memorably opens Romans 8 by saying, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And the great truth of this verse is captured. If we, if we had to pick two words to summarize it, it'd have to be uh, the word no and the word condemnation. If you're a Christian, these two words tell you of your standing, your position, your status before God. Even though you're a wretched sinner, you'll never be condemned as one. Being under no condemnation doesn't automatically make you less wretched. It's, it makes you right with God in spite of your wretchedness you're no longer under condemnation no longer under god's wrath no longer headed for damnation eternally and one of you sent me an email this week saying or last week saying that you as you meditated on this passage last sunday it didn't seem right to merely call it good news Oh, it seems like an understatement. This person said good news is, is an understatement. Marvelous news is more like it. And I, and I agree. I was thinking a similar thing as I was studying for the sermon. This is stunning news of astonishing grace, amazing grace, despite the remaining spiritual cesspool in my heart, despite the torrents of spiritual sewage running inside of me and spilling out of me. God has absolutely nothing against me. Think of it. Or against you, if you're in Christ Jesus. He finds no fault in you. He finds nothing to punish you for. When you stand before him in the courtroom of heaven, now and on the last day, he only sees the righteousness of Christ. Your previous condemnation doesn't exist anymore it's not that you just moved out from underneath it and then your condemnation with your name on it's still there it's just you're kind of over here now and it might return or you might return under it it's not waiting in the wings casting a cloud over you and your future it's no no, it's non-existent it's it's extinct it can't return because it's been snuffed out of of being in christ the moment you came into christ jesus your condemnation was gone forever because that condemnation had been put on jesus at the cross and he took care of it he rose from the dead he didn't stay under condemnation he rose from the dead for your justification for your salvation and so in him your condemnation is gone just as surely as jesus is no longer under the condemnation of God as he once was on the cross. Jesus has absorbed all of it. He's obliterated it on the cross in his death and resurrection. And so there's nothing left for you to take, to absorb, to experience. There can never be any condemnation for you again any more than there can be condemnation for Jesus again. And to put it more positively, there's nothing for you but God's eternal acceptance. You've been accepted by God. The God who made you, the God that you sinned against, rebelled against, has accepted you in Jesus. Your spiritual troubles, my spiritual troubles, stem from your failure, my failure to realize this truth. What happens, you know what happens when your no condemnation status slips into the recesses of your heart and mind. You become dominated by guilt. You think only of your unworthiness because you've lost sight of Christ's infinite worthiness. And this leads to more troubles. To to combat the misery of feeling worthless and condemned, you're driven to prove yourself with accomplishments and good behavior. You're forced to exalt yourself, perhaps bring others down in order to achieve worth. You're forced to compromise God's holiness so that you can maybe get closer to it. Because you feel God's condemnation, then in life you're sensitive, you're over-sensitive to Criticism. You, you can't take confrontations. You also can't enjoy communion with God. <clears throat> Perhaps you find yourself running to worldly pursuits, worldly distractions, or to alcohol, or to the wrong friends, or to sexual sin, or to anything but God in the hopes of finding relief from the weighty sense of God's disapproval. Forgetting your righteous status before God in Christ by faith in Him alone, it also strips you of your greatest—the greatest weapon in your arsenal for living the Christian life victoriously. What's the greatest? Well, other than the Holy Spirit, God has given us the Holy Spirit. That's that—that's our weapon in His Word, but. In terms of our, what's inside of us? What's your greatest motivator for walking in holiness? In terms of how you think, what you believe. Your greatest motivator is knowing that you're accepted as a son or daughter before God. That's the greatest motivator. In your walk with God. Nothing will ever motivate you like the knowledge of God's love for you. His acceptance of you in Christ. And when you fail to... to, Because that's really believing the gospel is what that is. That's faith. That's trusting in what God says about you in Christ. It's trusting in Christ and his gospel. And when you fail to grasp your no condemnation verdict. your, your, Your motivations for obedience are reduced to duty and fear, which are not enough apart from love for God and gratitude for what he's given you. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that the difference between an unbeliever who sins against God and a believer who sins against God is like the difference between a man who violates the the law of the state, law of the land, and a man who violates his wife's trust. The, the guy who's disloyal to his wife isn't breaking the law of the land necessarily. He's he, In fact, he's doing something far worse. He's wounding the heart of his wife. It, it's, it's not a legal matter. It's, it's a matter of, personal relationship and love. He doesn't cease to be a husband legally when he sins against his wife, when he breaks her trust, when he's disloyal to her. The the law doesn't really come into play at all. What what he's doing to his wife is in, in a sense much worse than coming under legal condemnation. He's hurting someone he loves, someone close to him, someone he's in covenant with, someone who loves him and has been loyal to him. When we as believers sin against God, the problem isn't that we put ourselves back under his legal condemnation. In a sense, we do something much worse. We grieve someone we love and who loves us, who's perfectly loyal to us, someone close to us, someone we're in covenant with. We grieve the God of infinite holiness who loved us in our infinite unholiness, our infinite offense against that holy God, who pursued us and bound himself to us in an eternal marriage covenant when we were his sworn enemies. So when you sin against love in this way, when you sin against God who is love in this way, You should feel shame, absolutely, but you shouldn't feel condemnation because to do so is to forget who God is, to forget his love and his acceptance of you in Christ. It's essentially to forget the gospel. And when you forget this, you forget, again, an essential weapon in your lifelong war against sin. Feeling shame because of your sin has a place and a purpose. But feeling condemned will only weaken you spiritually if in fact you are no longer under condemnation. The marvelous news of your no condemnation status and then raises the question: how is this possible? How did God do this? How, how can we not be condemned for the shameful, truly shameful things that we do, we've done and continue to do? Is this legally legit? I mean, is God really just in letting us off the hook and letting us go scot-free and declaring me to be righteous even though I sin enough every day to earn an eternity of condemnation in hell? Well, yes, God has taken care of that particular problem. Your no condemnation status is supported by a solid foundation. The foundation of the gospel, point two, is that sin has been condemned by the Father. And we covered this last week, so I'll only briefly comment on verse three, which says, for what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, even as a sin offering. He condemned sin in the flesh. God the Father sent God the Son to become fully human. He stepped into our groaning, sin-infested world, and even into our groaning, sin-infested skin and he offered himself up as a sacrifice, <clears throat> as a sin offering for our sin. That, that last line in verse 3 means that God condemned our sin in the human flesh of Jesus. That's what it means to be a sin offering, a sacrifice for sin. Every sin of every believer was put onto Christ... It was imputed to Christ, so that at the cross, God's condemning wrath against all those in Christ was fully satisfied. Your condemnation was completely absorbed, eternally dealt with, totally snuffed out of existence. Jesus was condemned, so you don't have to be. So we've covered the fact of your no condemnation Status and the, the foundation of this verdict. But God didn't just send Jesus to, to defeat sin legally. Christ also went to the cross to decimate sin's power. It's power over you. It's, it, it, it's power in your life and in your body, in your heart and in your mind. Christ went to the cross to make you more obedient to God's law. He went to the cross so that your sorrow over your sins, the, the sorrow and the shame that you feel when you sin, leads you to repentance that leads to life, rather than a worldly sorrow that just ends in worldly Shamefulness, a sense of shame and guilt that, that that leads to death. He came and he went to the cross not only for your salvation but also for your sanctification. The the true gospel, the full gospel, when it takes effect in someone's life, always destroys sinful behavior and bears fruit in that person's life. And so this brings us to point number three. The fruit of the gospel is that justified sinners are made holy. They're sanctified. They're they're made to look, to to behave, and to act, to talk, to think more like Jesus by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit. We see this in verses 2 and 4. Let's look at verse 2 first. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Here Paul says that justified sinners, saved sinners, redeemed, rescued sinners have been set free, We're fundamentally free from sin, from its bondage by the Spirit. And so that captivity that Paul talks about in Romans 7 is no longer constantly and fundamentally the case. We, we decide to go back into that captivity. Sin drags us back into that captivity. But it's no longer, uh, it's no longer where we have to be by, by our nature because we have a new nature. And the freedom Paul's talking about here is, is the freedom from sin's tyranny. He's not talking about sin's penalty, specifically in verse 2, but sin's power. It's control, it's dominating force in your life. So, whereas verse 1 said that there's no condemnation for sin, for those who are in Christ Jesus, verse 2 says there's no bondage to sin for those in Christ. So verse 1, no condemnation for sin. Verse 2, no bondage to sin in Christ. And those two things go together. You can't separate them. You can't have one without the other. Now, verse 2 is tricky Because Paul uses the word law there, but he's not referring to, it's the same word for law everywhere else in Romans, but he's not referring to God's moral law this time. He usually is. In the book of Romans, Paul actually uses this word, the Greek word namas, law, three different ways. So most of the time it refers to the law of God, the, the holy requirements the moral law, as we, as we see them revealed to us in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's specifically talking about the, the law of Moses. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. And that's the first and most common meaning of law in Romans, but sometimes he uses law to describe a general principle, a general operating principle. For example, that's how he uses the word in Romans 7.21 at the top of the handout. I find then this law, Paul says, when I want to do good, evil is present with me. That's not a law from, the, from Moses, right? That's, that's not a commandment. It, what, what Paul means is that he finds a principle at work in him. The principle is that when he wants to do good, evil's right there. But there's also a third way that Paul uses law. He sometimes uses it to refer to power, force, maybe influence, but a power. And, and that's what it means in Romans 8, 2, both times. There are two powers, two forces at work in Romans 8.2. There's the power of the spirit of life, law of the spirit of life, force of the spirit of life, power of the spirit of life, and the power or law of sin and death. And the one has freed you from the other because the one is more powerful than the other in the believer. The powerful force of the spirit of life has set you free from the powerful force of the sin and death. So verse 1 says that we've been delivered from the legal condemnation of sin, and verse 2 says we've been delivered from the dominating reign of sin, the force, the power. In other words, salvation addresses both our legal guilt, our legal standing in verse 1, and our internal corruption in verse 2. Once again, Paul teaches that those who've been truly saved from sin's guilt have also been set free from sin's grip. Justification is always followed by sanctification. Paul won't let us escape this truth. He keeps coming back to this truth from different angles in the book of Romans. Keeps reminding us in different ways that, you've, that you haven't just been set free from sin's captivity legally. You've also been freed from sin's captivity Experientially. Your no condemnation status isn't just in the heavenly books. It's also in your spiritual bones. And if it's not in your bones, then it's not in the books. If you, if you have no experience of freedom from sin, if the spirit of life is not, if that law of the spirit of life is not at work in you, making you less Sinful, less like your old self, less like the first Adam, and more holy, more like the last Adam, Jesus, then you've not experienced the new birth. And if you've not experienced the new birth, you're still under condemnation. Well, Paul, per, Paul personalizes this reality in verse 2. He says that the law of the spirit of life has set who free? Depending on the translation, but in, my, in our translation, in this handout has set me free and this is another place we talked about one place last week this is rare overall but there happen to be two instances of where the manuscripts don't agree in, in two back to back verses here the, the newer translations say you and, you, and that's true too um, it is true of Paul me. It's, it's true of other believers as well so either one would be true but the newer translations say "you," because there are a few manuscripts that say "you." And in the last hundred or 150 years, scholars have tended to favor those minority of manuscripts, but the majority of Greek manuscripts, in those, those texts in those manuscripts, Paul personalizes God's salvation at work within him by saying that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free." and that actually fits better with the the paragraph before which is on your handout from romans 7 if you just glance back up there i read it at the beginning of the sermon but it's it's he's personalizing this stuff and he continues to personalize it here in the beginning of romans 8 remember there are no chapter breaks when paul was writing and so he didn't say okay now romans 8 and start a new section it's a good place to start a new section but it appears to me, when we look at the majority of manuscripts, which I think are correct, Paul is still personalizing this. He personalized the struggle, now he's personalizing the victory in Jesus. And I think there are good historical reasons to go with the majority of the text, which is what, what the church has, has used most of the time in most places and times. So if you're memorizing Romans 8, you can use whichever translation you, know, you like. You know, most of the newer translations are solid, um, and so for the for the bulk of of the chapter. But maybe for the first two verses, you ought to consider using a translation that includes all of verse one, talked about last week, and that personalizes verse two, or just maybe change that one pronoun to me instead of you. Uh, the, the King James, the New King James, are a couple of translations that I think get it right. Because what a wonderful confession verse 2 is. Can you see and hear Paul rejoicing when he says that the powerful force of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the powerful, sin, uh, from the powerful force of sin and death? Is verse 2 your testimony? Do you experience... Freedom from sin's reign in your body? Is this experiential? Not just legally true, but experiential for you? The experience of liberation from sin's power belongs to everyone who humbles himself, everyone who forsakes his sin and runs to Christ. The Lord Jesus gives everyone in him, everyone who comes to him, the powerful force, the law of the spirit of life. Well why? Why did the father send his son. To absorb absorb our condemnation. Why did he send the spirit. To break our bondage to sin. Verse 4 says. So now we're skipping. From verse 2 to verse 4. We've already covered verse 3. Verse 4 says that everything. The father son and holy spirit. Have accomplished for us. In saving us was all done for a specific, a specific purpose. And you see what that purpose is in verse 4. It was so that we might live holy lives, to summarize. The end of verse 3 declares that the Father condemned our sin in the flesh of Jesus on the cross. Why? Verse 4. So that the righteous ordinance of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. If you're a justified sinner, if you're no longer under that condemnation for your sin, then you've been set free by the Spirit. And this means that you can now fulfill God's law by the same Spirit, through the same Spirit. That's, those are big words. You, fulfilling God's law is not only something Jesus does. Now, Jesus did it in a unique way that you don't do. But that word, fulfill the law, that we think, well, that's only Jesus. That's only Jesus. The promises are yes and amen. in Jesus, he's the fulfillment. He fulfills that. Well, Paul uses the same word, the same verb. And he descri- and he uses it to describe our obedience. So we, so we're a part of old, of fulfilling. Your life of obedience is part of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Did you know that? Your life of obedience to god's word in doing his will is part of the fulfillment of old testament prophecies and we're going to look at one of them in a little bit and so what it means to fulfill the righteous ordinance of the law is just to obey to do god's will to keep his commandments the thing jesus came for as far as this particular text is concerned the thing he died for, the thing he lives for, the thing he prays for. The reason he came is to make us holy. That's where this paragraph is going all along. It's how it culminates. The reason he took on our sinful flesh, the reason he became a sin offering, the reason he went to the cross to receive our condemnation, the purpose of his life and ministry, was to enable us to glorify God with our bodies and our lives, with our tongues and our minds, with our hearts and our wills, with our hands and our feet. That's the end goal. The end goal isn't your no condemnation status. Glorious though that be and necessary though that be for what, for, for what else Paul says. Justification isn't the final destination. No, the reason Christ took your condemnation status upon himself and gave you his no condemnation status was so that you might honor God by fulfilling his righteous commandments, doing the law, keeping the law. Not perfectly, because you can't. Not pretending to be perfect. That would be a lie. But truly obeying God in a way that pleases him. You've been saved to be sanctified. God's will for your life is your sanctification. Actually, that's straight from Scripture. It's exactly what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. Listen, write it down, but maybe listen instead of turning there. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 3, and I'm going to go through verse 7. But I'm going to stop before I even get to the end of verse 1 and say something. Uh, verse three, verse three. For this is God's will, comma. Your sanctification. Okay, so that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Did, did you know that God's will for your life is written in Scripture, and it's it's inspired text. God's will for your life. He's written it down for you. His will, Paul says, is that you grow in holiness. So if you're concerned. To know God's will in, in, some, uh, in other areas of your life, you first need to make sure you're mainly concerned about your sanctification, which is what God is most concerned about. He's revealed that, his will there. For this is God's will, okay, continuing with the text, for this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we also previously told and warned you. Verse 7, For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-7. So God's will for your life is your sanctification. You're not free to live any way you want. God's moral law is as binding on you as it was on Moses and Joshua and Deborah and David and Isaiah, even going all the way back to Adam. The requirement in Romans 8-4 is that God's righteous And holy standards must be lived out in your Christian life. It's not enough for the righteousness of Christ to be counted as your righteousness in the courtroom of heaven so that you're no longer under God's condemning wrath. You see, that's not the full picture of Romans 8 verses 1 to 4, which are a unit. The righteousness of Christ must also be realized in your words and thoughts and behavior. You see, I'm going to say something that probably sound controversial, but it's taught explicitly in the book of Hebrews. Heaven is for the holy. Hebrews says that you will only see the Lord at the end of your life if, if there was personal holiness during your life. In the Old Testament, when the prophets were looking ahead to the time of the new covenant, prophesying about what was to come we know it's been it's being fulfilled has been fulfilled and it's being fulfilled in Christ but when they're looking ahead they didn't just envision a time when god would come and and forgive his people make a sacrifice for his people that would actually cover over you know forgive their sin cover their sins propitiate god's wrath that's part of what they saw but that's not all they envisioned. They also envisioned a time, the same time, when God would transform his people. Not just forgive his people, but transform his people. For example, in Ezekiel 36, God predicts that he will do for his, he predicts what he will do for his people in the new covenant. And By the way, Ezekiel 36 is a great chapter to be familiar with in your Bibles. Listen to what the Lord says in Ezekiel 36, verses 24 to 27. And keep in mind that this prophecy has been fulfilled, has been being fulfilled, I should say, ever since Jesus went to the cross and started gathering people like you and me to himself. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and I will cleanse you from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put within you a new spirit. This is little less spirit. This is our spirits. A new spirit, a new heart. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh that means a a malleable heart a heart that is sensitive to god's word and will verse 27 and i will put my spirit within you that's capital s spirit i will put my spirit within you and i will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws that's what god will cause his people to do not just the forgiveness of uncleanness but i will cause you to walk in my statutes and be and i'll cause you to be careful to obey my laws sort of two ways of saying the same thing he's emphasizing it there that's that was what that's the that's the gospel the good news that the old testament saints should have been expecting salvation and sanctification justification and sanctification and there are three things to notice in in that passage from Ezekiel 36, three things that connect it to Romans 8. And in many ways, what Paul's doing in Romans 8 is saying that this is is what's going on. The first, when God cleansed you from all your uncleanness and and, and your idols, when he washed away your sin, forgave you, and brought you into Christ and into the community of, of the not condemned, when he removed your heart of stone and 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 put in its place a heart of flesh and a a new reborn spirit. His purpose in doing this, his goal, as it relates to your life, was to give you the ability to walk in his statutes and to obey his laws. You see, God is forming a people in Christ who are forgiven of their sins and who fulfill God's law. And we create imbalance when we talk about one over against the other. When we fail to see both of these things together. The second thing to notice from Ezekiel's prophecy is that God didn't just promise to give you a new heart and a new spirit. He also promised you that he would give you his spirit Capital S, Spirit. The Holy Spirit, it's not enough for for your heart and your spirit to be renewed. To fulfill God's law, you must also have God's Spirit dwelling in you, living in you, empowering you. Without the Holy Spirit, you're like a person with two broken legs, two broken femur bones, trying to... Compete in a marathon. But with, but with the Spirit, you're like a formerly disabled person who's been given gold medal legs, gold, gold medal lungs, and a gold medal heart. And not only that, but there's also a strong wind at your back. The Spirit in you gives you everything that you need to run the race that's been set before you and to run it well. To run it well by God's grace. Now, running a race is the metaphor that Paul uses for the Christian life in another place. Realize there's a little bit of a problem there in the uh, preaching class. I am have gotten taken off for using that metaphor because here in Romans 8, he actually uses the word the verb walk, okay, which is the same verb that God uses in the passage from Ezekiel 36. But we need to realize that running the race well and walking well, walking in the spirit, are two metaphors that refer to, describe, illustrate the same spiritual reality. And in Ezekiel 36, verse 27, God said, And I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to be careful to obey my laws. And that's the third thing that connects Ezekiel 36 to our passage. Because twice in Romans 8, 1 to 4, once in verse 1, once in verse 4, Paul says that Christians walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Keeping in step with the Holy Spirit is not just an optional sort of bonus to the Christian life. So there are some Christians, some born again Christians that are justified, but they don't, that, you know, they're, they're saved, but they don't walk in the Spirit. And then over here are the super Christians, the, the super saints, who also add walking in the Spirit to their salvation. No, that's not how it works. That's one, of the, that's one of the lies from the enemy and a lie that's infiltrated even the church and the teaching of many Christian teachers and pastors. But walking in the Spirit is why God saved you, part of why God saved you. That's what the so that at the beginning of verse 4 means and points to. God condemned Jesus on the cross. Why? So that, Paul says, the righteous ordinance of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Becoming a Christian is not just about entering the narrow gate, walking through the straight gate, the narrow gate. It's, that's, that's not all it's about, is just, okay, I've, I'm saved, I've been converted, I've passed through... I'm, I'm, on the other side of that narrow gate. It's also about walking on the, narrow, on the path that's on the other side of the narrow gate, walking on the path that the narrow gate opens up to. And it's a hard path. It's a difficult path, but it's the only path, and hear this, it's the only path that leads to life. There is no other path that will take you to eternal life other than the path that's on the other side of the narrow gate, that you must walk. It's a road you must walk. And it's a road that you can only walk in the power of the Spirit. You don't have the resources to do it. But God has given you His Spirit, and so He calls you to do it, and you must. At the beginning of His letter to the Romans, Paul said that the gospel is the power of God. It's the power, that's the, that's the word, power of God that brings salvation. we got to be careful there. The salvation that Paul had in mind in, in chapter 1 when he's talking about that, it isn't just justification, isolated. He he wasn't just talking about conversion and initial forgiveness of sins. You know, getting your ticket to paradise, to eternal life. Salvation, according to the Bible, is a a whole process. Now, we're not saved by our sanctification. We're not saved by the the fruit that, that the Spirit produces in us. We're not saved by walking in the Spirit. But when you're saved, you will walk in the Spirit. And salvation... Justification, rather, is, is sort of it, its power is truncated in our, in our minds and in our theology if we separate it from the fruit that it produces. Salvation, according to the Bible, is a, is a whole process that begins with your conversion in this world and ends with your glorification in the world to come. And in between those those two points, in between your conversion in this life and your glorification in the life to come when Jesus returns, in between those two points, God's spirit is transforming you from one degree of glory to another, making you less sinful and more like Jesus. So the struggle described in Romans 7 isn't the full picture. It's true, and it's true of Christians, but it's not the full picture. The experience of victory described in Romans 8 is fundamental to the Christian life. The victorious life of a believer is is a testament. It, It bears witness to the power of the gospel that Paul began talking about all the way back in the first chapter. The victorious life of a Christian is a testament to the power of the gospel which doesn't merely deliver a person from God's condemnation, but also sets him free to fulfill God's law. Let's ask for God's help in doing what he calls us to do. Father, we thank you that in Jesus and by his spirit, you have begun a good work in us, your people, the good work of making us more like your son, making us holy. You've saved us from our sins. We've been justified in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We pray that you would continue that work of salvation by continuing to deliver us from sin's dominating power. We pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would do all of this for your glory and for our good. And we pray for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.